Hello everyone, it's September 12th, 2023. This week we're doing a deep dive on Aditya, on its way to the Earth-Sun L1, the Grange Point where it will stare at the sun. Not recommended for people, but for this ambitious ISRO spacecraft, that's what it was designed to do. So let's do what we do and get into the details and lift off. Welcome to episode 426 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. And Ben's out today. He's under the weather. Yep. Hope you feel better soon, Ben. He has a, what, a non-COVID illness, I think you said, or like a cold. Yeah, yeah. He's basically felt miserably sick all week, but he's been testing negative for, you know, COVID. And so... And apparently he hit his head too, which I won't give away how. I'll leave that to him if he wants to say how, but uh, <laughs> but he's fine. He's, he still knows his name and what year it is and everything, so... Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as I say, if you're feeling like, cold, like you got a cold, like congested and you got a cold and all that, uh-huh. bumping your noggin sounds just like absolutely miserable. Uh, on top of that, <laughs> to kind of compound yeah, things. Yeah, not, not a fun day. Mm. But um, so just a little bit of space related, not news because this is old news, I suppose. But well, it's new news to me, and you brought it to my attention uh, about the launch pad propellant tanks for the space shuttle. Apparently, you have an interesting tweet from Dr. Phil Metzger. Uh, we've referenced him a lot. The tweet says that those liquid oxygen tanks were meant to be refilled and emptied just six times, but they never were replaced. Is that correct? Yeah, apparently. Yeah. And, and I mean, this even goes to to the uh, the Apollo era too, because they use the same LOX tanks and everything. But yeah, apparently they were supposed to, they were certified to be emptied and refilled only six times. And yet they just kept them filled with liquid oxygen for 40 years, just kept topping them off. <laughs> consistently during the entirety of those programs. So that leads to my question, is that requirement just if they're completely emptied and then refilled or are they never completely emptied? And so just as long as they're kept in a cryogenic state, it's not considered an actual cycle. You know what I mean? Because like there's no difference in uh, or a change in temperature perhaps. Yeah, I guess they 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 hadn't been emptied and refilled even once. <laughs> they, they were just <laughs> kept cold and topped off uh, for 40 years. Uh, I don't know exactly how much the tank stores relative to how much is then loaded for a particular launch and, and for the two different vehicles. But uh, whatever it is, they, yeah, they didn't uh, do a, uh, you know, they didn't go through the, a full thermal cycle. And what's hilarious about Phil Metzger's tweet is that nobody knew where this requirement came from or like it sounds like why they were doing it like or like or why it existed and why they just topped it off it was just something people were doing i guess <laughs> they just were like yeah all right well let's just uh let's just keep them full why not i guess the idea is that some engineer made that requirement but never but like failed to write down exactly why or it just got lost and it just kind of got lost mm-hmm. as to why that was some kind of a miscommunication there yeah maybe, maybe the same kind of you know uh, a loss to history and time you know that's the same reason why we can't just rebuild a saturn V and go land on the moon like uh, uh moon landing skeptics always bring up like why can't we just rebuild a saturn V? it's like a yeah. lot of a lot of not only is this expertise you know was very bespoke for the Apollo program, but like a lot of documentation and knowledge is is just straight up lost, yeah, but yeah, i mean he he speculates that it has to do with this uh the insulation between the kind of like inner sphere and outer sphere because like where where the liquid oxygen live like you know is actually contained within an inner sphere, and then there's this perlite material around it, um this kind of uh powdered stuff that you 
pore in there to act as an insulator, and then there's the outer uh, sphere, the outer shell, I suppose, which then, I guess, touches the atmosphere. He has a, a theory for something about that um, perlite. You could only cycle it so many times, otherwise the perlite would kind of, I guess, all settle onto the bottom and you would no longer be insulating the top of your sphere. And so uh, it's, it's a speculation, again, from, you said this was old, this is from 2017 <laughs> that he tweeted out this story, but who knows? In the news, Aditya One study in the sun. Good rhyme. Um, and I think it's pronounced Aditya, right? Did that's, I put the stress on the right syllable there? That's how I've been pronouncing it. But okay. um, yeah, so it's it's named after a uh, um, a, a Hindu solar sun god um, who goes by a lot of other names as well, including uh, Surya. Is is I guess uh, mm-hmm. one of the more common ones, but Aditya um, as well as. Uh, Wikipedia literally lists like a dozen uh, other uh, names for him as well. But uh, yeah, very appropriate because it is a heliospheric heliophysics mission. It's it's studying the sun. Yeah, and this is the one that recently went out, was uh, launched out to the Sun-Earth Lagrange Point 1. Um, and I think I mentioned that because you don't see launches to the L1 point very often. I guess the last time was probably when the James Webb, of course it wasn't Earth's sun but you know it was still a lagrange point or was it no oh, yeah er- it was Earth's, or it was l it's l2, l2. sorry yeah. yeah there you go but you're right there's not too many spacecraft sent to earth sun lagrange points but you know i guess that's just because there's a lot more uh leo and cislunar missions than there are you know mm-hmm. interplanetary ones and so this one's occupying the same space as uh or the same gravitational sweet spot as what's the other one um i always discover forget the name of it. <laughs> Discover. There you go. I can never remember that. So they might bump into each other, but <laughs> probably not. So yeah, this was launched on the 2nd. So it still has quite a ways to go, right? So this is a 110-day journey to the Earth-Sun L1 point. Yeah. I mean, this you know, this is this is news, right? It was only on September 2nd that they launched it on a PSLV XL, right? Like you said, you talked about and you saw, hey, it's going to L1. So that's pretty cool. Um, and just real quick, there's, uh, there's, there's other spacecraft too. So uh, evidently uh, SOHO. Good old Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, uh, as well as ACE and WIND are also chilling at um, at the Earth-Sun L1. So this is the fifth spacecraft that is there right now. And there wow. have been ones that we've sent in the past. But yeah, 110-day journey to get there. Uh, has to do a bunch of maneuvers to settle in, right? Nice big uh, halo orbit around there. But this is, uh, this is something that you don't hear too often um, where... Or at least I don't think you hear it too often where it, you start off with a, a less ambitious mission and then expand it significantly in scope. And I love that. Right? that I mean, that's great. Like usually, you know, you start with like, you know, here's our big mission we're going to plan. And then you end up eh, budget reasons. You know, we want to get yeah. rid of this instrument and kind of de-scope it this way and that. But it was the exact opposite. So do you know what led to that expansion in scope? I'm, th- I'm guessing just the fact that, I mean, the Indian space program is ascendant right now. You know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the Chinese and Indian space programs are both, you know, just growing and being like just they're doing a great job, <laughs> both of them. And so I, I, my guess is that uh, this being the first and, you know, so only uh, Indian uh, heliospheric spacecraft uh, that they kind of just were like, you know, we, they, they still did it on a relatively, I mean, not even a relatively, they did it on a cheap budget as well, uh, only $46 million US dollars uh, equivalent. 
And so that meant that if you can increase its scope and do more with it, yeah, it's just a different attitude, I guess. If that mm-hmm. makes sense, that was a very clumsy way of trying to just say that. That like you know, because they want to, because they take their space program very seriously, and they're excited and doing great things. And so they were like, "Yeah, let's expand the scope and you know get some more instruments and a bigger spacecraft and just improve it." Really, I guess I was wondering: is it that they said we have some extra money to spend, so let's go ahead and do that, or is it that they kept the money the same and said, "You know, we're actually coming in a little under budget, so we can." you know, do more with the same amount of money. You know, that was kind of what I was wondering is in what way did it expand? Was it just because they threw more money at it or because mm-hmm. they were just capable of more than they had realized? And that's that's a good question. And while I hadn't read anything about this, um, my guess is just because it's not like they had, you know, they, they had an extra, you know, $10 million and like, ooh, let's go and add another, you know, instrument or something like that. Uh, this is to not beat around it, like, it is a because it's such a huge increase in the mission uh, scope. I, I don't think it could have been that they saved money because I mean they went yeah. from a four hundred kilogram spacecraft to fourteen hundred kilogram. They went that's a big difference and changed it from just being in Leo, where it was going to you know go into orbital night and not be able to study the sun at some points, to going to the Earth Sun L one, which is you know millions of miles away, and as a result be able to just have permanent capability of uh, observing the sun. And in terms of instruments, it was going to have a single instrument and now they expanded it to seven. And so that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My guess then would be that they were at a technology readiness level, let's say, that was they were making achievements faster than they had anticipated. And then because of that, they said, hey, you know what, let's just go ahead and spend the extra money because, you know, we Mm -hmm. just because we can do a lot more because like, obviously, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, like if the mission's not ready, and certain things can't be done, then they just can't be done. But it seems like they had the ability. And then they said, well, let's just go ahead and spend some more money and do a much more ambitious project here. Mm -hmm. That would be my guess. I don't know. I'm just making that up. But (laughs) And, and And I'm sure it really helps too that, you know, the government was you know behind this because they there's there's a lot of national pride in the space program and and it's it's a good look for a you know the most populous country on earth to have you know mm-hmm. these successes in space it's it's really a uh, you know a feather in your cap and it you know it, it looks good on the national stage and uh, if nothing else uh, the prime minister of uh, <laughs> India is very much a uh, Likes to put himself on the center stage and <laughs> promote himself and promote India. Um, he's, I mean, he right, he would have like stadiums full of people. He's he's got that kind of attitude <laughs> uh, when it comes to things. So having a uh, successful space program uh, is is good. Is good for them. And kind of a, on a related note, uh, there's a, uh, a person. If you want to uh, follow a Garib scientist, uh, they've got these great videos and they're on Twitter and they talk a lot about, you know, uh, ISRO and the Indian space program. And I saw that they had tweeted something out uh, a few weeks ago and it was actually in uh, response to uh, Chandrayaan 3's successful landing. But um, a lot of, I, I just want to bring this up just because it's, it's kind of counter to the main narrative that when you see what India has done, you know, with these missions that are basically, you know, very cheap and there's a lot of praise and, you know, it's well-deserved for them to be able to accomplish great things on a essentially a shoestring budget. But Garib scientists had tweeted out that when you see those cheap budgets, that's something that we shouldn't see as a positive. That's actually a negative. 
that there should be more money towards the space program, that they should be able to lavish more on these, you know, lunar landers and solar observatories and whatnot. And that, uh, yeah, basically they doing a lot with little money is good, but basically they were questioning why is there not enough money in the space program? And so I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of like that uh, perspective. And just, uh, and I, I guess now it might be good to give a shout out to uh, Gopal. Uh, so thank you, Gopal, uh, for suggesting that we kind of talk about the uh, DTL-1 mission in more detail, which uh, is a, it's a really cool mission. And it's, uh, Again, I, I just love the idea that it expanded in scope so much that it had originally just one instrument, kind of the real uh, heart of it, which is a uh, coronagraph. But then they added all the other bells and whistles that you like to have on a mission to study the sun and interplanetary space. And that's just great. And so, yeah, uh, like you said, it's uh, over 100 days to get to the Sun-Earth L1. So it's currently cruising its way out there. <laughs> um, yeah, it's only like eight days in. <laughs> yeah, right. I say it's got it's got a long ways to go. But uh, it sounds like everything is going well so far because um, one of the early things that could have tripped it up is that it has uh, folded solar panels that needed to deploy. And so um, if you want to visualize what the spacecraft looks like, uh, it looks like a, a cube. So it's a big old box. It's got the two solar panels that successfully deployed. And it has almost all the instruments sitting, you know, on top of the box. And so that's that's kind of it. It's a fairly straightforward uh, vehicle. The bus is called a, uh, it's a Sarl bus. Um, so there is heritage. They have flown uh, these before. Uh, where Sarl is an acronym, uh, stands for Satellite with Argos and Altica where uh, that's a reference to uh, the last time they kind of, or I guess the first time they flew one of these Sarl buses. Those are references to other to instruments and another spacecraft, the Argos uh, spacecrafts that we've, I think we've talked about on the show before. Um, and Altica was an European instrument that they put on this, uh, this Sarl mission. So it's kind of, you know, straightforward stuff. Uh, you know, it's got, uh, it draws about 400 watts of power, which I think is pretty interesting. I always like to see how much of a power draw do you have for your, uh, vehicle and the fact that it's you know it's over it's it's almost a ton and a half and so getting 400 watts for for that's pretty good <laughs> you know like i guess uh pretty yeah. efficient in terms of uh energy use yeah once it's at its destination it shouldn't have to worry about power i would think just because it's always going to be in sunlight so there's no orbital night to worry about <laughs> yep exactly but apparently there is a lithium-ion battery on board uh for powering the spacecraft and that's just during its orbit around the earth right so this is something that's just going to be used for the first couple well i don't know how long days or weeks however long it takes for it to spin out to its destination and i don't know how much of the earth's shadow it's going to be in but or you know how often that will be mm -hmm. um yeah and 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 yeah, and that's 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 kind of kind of funny. Like yeah, it, it it's only going to be in this eclipse very early on in the mission. I don't even know if it spent days in low Earth orbit or it just kind of after you know on day one it was already kind of on its path out. But yeah, you could get away with a single battery on the spacecraft because you're going to be in sunlight the whole time, uh, basically the whole time. So that's pretty fun. And as far as uh, the way you know that it's a uh, it's kind of a big vehicle is that it not only has reaction wheels and magnetic torquers, but also has RCS thrusters. So as far as I'm concerned, anytime your spacecraft has its own propulsion system, you're you're no longer a small little you know thing uh, anymore. And that would be necessary for being at the L1 point because you're going to have to make those adjustments in order yeah, to stay station keeping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So these seven instruments, uh, five of them uh, are basically PI'd by ISRO, and two of them were contributed by uh, different uh, Indian uh, academic institutes working with ISRO. Uh, but you, uh, like I said before, the, the meat and potatoes, the, the kind of core one, the one that was on the original mission is called VELC, V-E-L-C, uh, which stands for the Visual, Visible Emission Line Coronagraph. And it's a, yeah, it's, it's a telescope. It's a 20 centimeter off-axis coronagraph, uh, where a coronagraph means, right, you basically have something that blocks the sun's light so you can image off disk, essentially. And that's the whole idea behind the spacecraft is that it doesn't want to study, you know, the sun itself. It's not going to be aimed at, you know, the sun like uh, uh, Soho does, but rather it wants to look at what's called the chromosphere, the chromosphere and the uh, corona. And the chromosphere, I always like to think of it as, because the sun does have an atmosphere, right? There, you know, we refer to the solar atmosphere, but if the photosphere, right, the disk of the sun, if you think of that as the sun's surface, then the chromosphere lies above that. And so it's like, it's really like a, an atmosphere. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, plasma and gas and it's, you know, high temperature and you get a lot of UV emission from it. And so that's kind of the, uh, the 32nd explanation of what a chromosphere is. <laughs> and then the corona, which means crown, that's the one that extends really far out and is at a bizarrely high temperature, millions of degrees, which Nobody knows exactly why it's that temperature. We got some ideas for what causes it, but that's kind of one of the main unsolved questions is exactly how does that coronasphere get so get so hot? And so, yeah, so this, this coronagraph does that. Um, and interestingly enough, while it's doing, you know, kind of, I guess, proper imaging of the chromosphere and corona, uh, it also does uh, simultaneous narrowband imaging of a few emission lines. Uh, I think these are a pair of uh, different lines in uh, iron, different ionized iron. And so it basically is looking out beyond the disk to one and a half uh, solar radii or to three radii, depending on uh, the exact imaging mode. And uh, yeah, you get two arc second resolution, which, uh, which ain't bad. Uh, and you also get polarization measurements. And so basically in what plane is your electromagnetic wave wiggling through space? And so that was the one that could have been good enough right, that you could have this small spacecraft with this one coronagraph on there uh, in Leo looking at the sun. But instead, you're going out to L1 and you have these other uh, six instruments. And uh, I guess you can kind of uh, clump them into, I guess, four groups, um, right? So you've got the imagers. So that's the coronagraph, VELC, the main one. And then they added another imager, um, SUIT, which stands for Solar Ultraviolet Imaging Telescope. And in that case, it's a 10-band uh, a UV imager, and it has a field of view that overlaps with VELC. And so you're getting simultaneous, not only are you getting simultaneous visible imaging of the sun, uh, corona, but you're also getting UV imaging as well as those narrow band uh, emission lines that I mentioned before. And so, you know, basically a lot of good characterization happening there. And so that's the visible stuff. Then there's the X-ray imagers. And so there's Solexes and Helios, where Solexes stands for Solar Low Energy X-ray Spectrometer, and Helios stands for High Energy L1 Orbiting X-ray Spectrometer. And so Helios doing that fun thing with acronyms where the one in L1 is <laughs> put in place of the I in Helios. That's pretty clever, though. I yeah. kind of like it. Yeah. No, these, these, these are not bad acronyms at all. Um, 
Yeah. And so these are these are both X-ray spectrometers where, you know, Solex's is lower energy, 1 to 30 keV, and then Helios is uh, much uh, harder X-rays going out to uh, 150 keV. And so that's the idea there. There's a lot of X-rays uh, getting emitted from the sun. And uh, yeah. And so Helios, right, of course, being the sun god. And so that's where we get not just words like heliocentric orbit or, you know, perihelion and aphelion, but you also get helium, which was first discovered in the sun. And so I always love telling my students that little factoid. <laughs> That's why helium is named helium and why it's rare mm -hmm. on Earth and why we need to be good about not wasting it. <laughs> uh, it's so rare. We discovered it on the sun before we discovered it on Earth. Kind of insane to think about that. But yeah, finally, when it comes to the, the, the last categories of instrument, um, I guess you could lump them together, but these are the more in situ ones. And so there's uh, ASPEX, which, stand, which stands for Aditya Solar Wind Particle Experiment, and then PAPA, or particle analyzer package for Aditya. And these two uh, right, are basically measuring the solar wind and measuring the plasma environment around the spacecraft, right? Because the sun's blasting stuff off into interplanetary space and the spacecraft is gonna be bathed in it. And so it can analyze the stuff from there. And then of course, the sun has a big old magnetic field that pervades the entirety of the you know, solar system. And so the final instrument is MAG, the magnetometer. And that's just, uh, I mentioned that all the instruments are on top uh, of the spacecraft and they just aim at the sun, you know, the whole time once it's, you know, in its operational mode. Uh, but the magnetometer is the only instrument on the other side of the spacecraft. And so it's sticking out opposite the sun and just, you know, doing its classic. It's a magnetometer on a boom and uh, yeah, measuring the ambient magnetic field there. So that's the, that's the Ditya. I mean, it's got it all, right? We've, we've talked like whenever we do, uh, you know, twisifs or talk about, you know, when Parker Solar Probe was launched, you know, you always end up <laughs> like these are, when you have a big yeah. flagship solar mission, you, these are the type of instruments you have on there. And so that's why Ditya L1 is kind of joining, you know, Solar Orbiter and Parker Solar Probe is this sort of this fleet of really being able to study the sun in a lot of detail in a number of different ways and kind of improve our understanding. So pretty awesome. You know, five-year lifetime, hopefully it'll be one of these, you know, where they have extended missions and we'll be talking about it for many years to come. I think really it's just going to come down to station keeping, first of all, and then mm -hmm. probably uh, how good those solar panels are because, you know, they degrade over time. Mm -hmm. I know that for like any kind of a, you know, like an L1 mission, it's I think usually just station keeping concerns that are the big one because you only have so much fuel. And then once you've expended that, you're going to drift into a heliocentric orbit mm -hmm. um, and you're going to leave that spot. So hopefully they can conserve as much fuel as possible which I think is what generally happens, right? Like, I think that the other ones that we mentioned earlier, those other spacecraft out there, mm -hmm. there's some, I think, that have lasted past their mission lifetime. You know, leave a, a little bit of room for error or a little bit of, just a little bit of wiggle room there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you always want to do that for like, you know, structural limits and things like that. But yeah, if you're going to say it's a five-year lifetime, then you don't want to give it five years worth of fuel. You want to, like you say, right. have a little margin on there. I'm sure that this thing will be operating past five years. Mm. I have a good feeling about that. Yeah. Let's do just two short and sweet this week. Dennis, what is the first? First up, Starship stands corrected. The FAA has completed its mishap investigation into Starship's launch in April and has outlined 63 corrective actions that must be made before consideration for a second launch. Due to the large number of proprietary and export control details concerning Starship, the corrective actions were not made public. However, many of the needed changes are focused on public and environmental safety. SpaceX has already made over a thousand changes to Starship since its inaugural launch, though it is not yet clear how many have addressed the FAA's concerns. And next up, 
Myospace test cryogenic second stage. Myospace has completed its first full-scale cryogenic test of its partially reusable My rocket second stage. The test was carried out at an Arian Group testing facility in Vernon, France. As a result of this successful test, two more cryogenic tests will be carried out later this month. A second My second stage is already being manufactured for a hot fire test in 2024. This aggressive timetable is in keeping with the company's goal of testing and iterating quickly in order to compete in the rapidly evolving launch market. This first flight of the My rocket is expected in late 2025. All right, let's move on to this week in Space Flight History. We have four correct answers. We have Astro, Uncle Willie, and then we have Deathkin and Ryan R who get the bonus points. The clue was Devoured Sun, and this is one of those... Uh, it's not a pun, but, you know, the spelling is important. So it's <laughs> Sun, S-O-N. This is a clue that uh, you and Ben came up with, right? Yeah, it was, it was mostly Ben. But, yeah, the, the idea was to reference a famous Goya painting called uh, Saturn Devouring His Sun. And so, uh, like, I guess just a little, you know, uh, content warning. It's It's a graphic painting so if you don't like that kind of stuff uh, it's it's pretty gory but it's kind of a it's a famous uh, one of yeah uh, that that Francisco Goya painted and so we figured since what was happening with this clue and Saturn being the planet Saturn um, it kind of well I don't want to give away the clue but I mean it devoured the spacecraft <laughs> so yeah yep <laughs> so that was the idea the event was the 15th of September 2017 and it was the end of the Cassini mission so uh, yeah that's the Saturn devouring his son. Yeah, so this was a uh, This Week in Space Flight History that was supposed to have been done by Ben, but since he's out this week, I guess we'll just, you know, tag team this thing and um, see how well we do. So first off, Cassini entered Saturn's orbit on the 1st of July, 2004. And um, we were talking about how long missions last just a few minutes ago. Um, so this one had a primary mission of just four years, but the main mission was actually extended by two years, and then it was extended again. Hmm. It's, I don't want to say convoluted, but it was a complicated timeline um, that it has. So you kind of want to bear with us as we go through it. But yeah, there were, there was ex multiple mission extensions and phases. Um, but yeah, long story short is what the clue <laughs> this week in spaceflight uh, history was the end of physically the spacecraft and thus the mission for real <laughs> to kind of just put a real stamp on it. But yeah, the, the, there was the primary mission of four years and then there was an extended mission that ran through 2010. And then after that, there was the extended, extended mission, which of course, if the extended mission is abbreviated XM, the extended, extended mission is XXM, which, uh, there's a logic to it, but I don't know. That kind of sounds funny to me, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And that, that XXM, uh, which, you know, I mean, there were kind of submissions, I guess. Um, they, they also had what they referred to as the, uh, the Equinox mission and the Solstice mission, depending on mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the kind of season that Saturn was in. Because Saturn has a tilt just like Earth's, very close to Earth's. And so it has seasons like, like we do for that reason. But in any event, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of, I guess, the, the mission nomenclature. So the uh, extended, extended mission, well, like you said, these two ex extended missions, they had the, it was the equinox and the solstice. Now, Saturn has a 30-year orbit. Was this mission long enough to actually cover both a solstice and an equinox? Because I guess that would be... Uh, Se seven. Yeah, seven. Seven okay, years right, and yeah. change. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll be focusing on the 
extended missions because these are closer to the end of the mission. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's what this twist is all about. So the new questions that were added to the XXM, there were such questions as what is Saturn's rotation rate, um, which I find interesting because I thought that would have either had already been known or maybe it would have been one of the primary questions. So I'm actually surprised to read that, um, that that wasn't maybe at the top of the list. Like what's the rate of rotation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's because the rotation rate of gas giants is a bit more uh, non-trivial than the rotation rate of like a rigid planet like the Earth. Right. Which still even has, you know, uh, uh, liquid cores and whatnot. But it seems like that would make it all the more interesting to know. But yeah, I guess it's a complicated question, right? So when you're determining the rotation rate, do you look at, that's a good question, like how do you determine that? Because to me, it would be, the thing I would focus on is probably the magnetosphere perhaps mm. in a planet like Saturn, you know, because mm -hmm. that would tell you something about the core and what it's doing, right? Mm -hmm. Is that a good line of reasoning? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's what I was going to say. I know that that's definitely one of the ways you can kind of try to pin down what how to define the rotation rate of a, a differential gaseous body like Saturn or Jupiter. Because you have clouds. Magnetic. <laughs> yeah, because there is supposed to be a, you know, there's a solid core at the center of them. And so if do you, do you count that as the rotation rate? Because the surface is not all rotating at the same rate. That's that's my understanding is the magnetic field is a good way to, to do that. Some other questions that were added to the extended missions uh, were what is the internal structure and can we better constrain the age of the rings, which is also a good question. And can we figure out how narrow gaps are cleared? And that is something that I assume that this has to do with the uh, the orbit of moons uh, in relation to rings. Yeah, no, the, yeah, the moons definitely uh, are responsible for uh, for some gaps in the uh, in in the rings of you know Saturn and other yeah. planets. So these were some of the questions that were brought up that you know could be added to the extended missions, and the conclusion was one of each, please. So like, hey, let's just <laughs> do everything. Let's just do all that stuff, and we got the time, I suppose, and we have the delta v, which I guess we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so first we'll start off with the solstice mission, and that uh, took us closer to Rhea, Hyperion, and Dion or Dione. How do you say that? You I would say Dione. Dione. Okay. Um, I've never actually read it out loud or heard it out loud. It's <laughs> a somewhat smaller moon. And this actually allowed for observations of the northern hexagon and its change in color, which I didn't know it changed color. A really interesting phenomenon. And apparently this allowed us to observe the transit of Venus across the sun. Yeah, I, I didn't know Cassini had done that either, but that's pretty awesome. Yeah. When, when you have like these uh, astro astronomical kind of like – events that you typically think of from Earth and then you when you hear about spacecraft doing them, <laughs> that's always always really cool. Like we'll have like a rover on Mars that'll see like, you know, Mars's moons eclipse each other or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, like whenever you hear about those kind of things, that's always neat. So so even as the extended extended mission came to a close, Cassini was still kicking butt and taking names. I mean we had like I mean we had a spacecraft around Saturn and so even though, yeah, I guess you extended it so much, it's getting older. I'm sure, you know, more bugs are creeping up, uh, but it's still like, you know, an incredibly valuable asset. Because I think it's also worth noting Cassini is like, it's a big, 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 big interplanetary probe, right? Like when you want to compare it to like Galileo or Voyagers or New Horizons, mm -hmm. like it is, it is a big old mission. Um, I think probably the, the biggest uh, that NASA yeah. has ever sent to another planet. Um, by probably a good margin. And so, uh, but in any event, uh, uh, they started planning for uh, what they call the grand finale. And so you got planetary protection 
you know, rules that we adhere to. And so that means, you know, you just don't shut off Cassini and let it orbit Saturn, which has, you know, a lot of moons and just, you know, whatever kind of eventually chaos develops, it could end up impacting a moon. And since those yeah. moons include Titan and Enceladus, uh, which have, uh, you know, which are interesting astrobiological uh, targets. The idea was to leave uh, 50 meters per second of propellant um, to be able to retire Cassini somewhere safe. And uh, the safest place is Saturn eventually. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, because it's, it's, it's interesting that it's called planetary protection, but they're not concerned with the planet. They're concerned with the moons. <laughs> right, right. I don't want to get into this whole debate, but like uh, by some people's definition, the moons are planets or yeah, which I don't I don't like that one bit. But I do think it is fair to refer to moons that, uh, you know, do have kind of geology and like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff happening as being planetary. Like, I think that's a fair adjective to use for them, even if they're they're not not planets, they're planetary. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good (laughs) distinction. That's, that's how I, that's how I see it. But, you know, at the end of the day, words are meant to be helpful. Uh, And so if it's helpful to you, then it's helpful to you. And so, yeah, uh, as far as where you're going to impact it, like I said, some of these are more astrobiologically, you know, relevant. So maybe you could impact it into one of Saturn's moons that aren't uh, very, uh, people do think are just like lifeless dead rocks. And so depending on the moon, it could be accomplished in a few weeks to a few months, but there wasn't really any science value. And so no reason to... So, so that kind of, I guess, was removed from the grand finale candidates. Um, another option, and, and by the way, this I, I, I think this is interesting that how they had kind of looked at the options for the grand finale, like where they were going to uh, ultimately dispose of Cassini. I, I didn't realize there was all this history behind it. And so uh, another option, which uh, initially sounds really cool, would be to impact the rings. Uh, close-up ring science uh, would be cool. Uh, it was tough to do um, because you, you know, to get close to the rings, it's not like the rings are a fixed, rigid object. There's kind of the closer you get to the rings, the closer you get to, you know, known bits of space rock that could very well impact your spacecraft and end your mission uh, prematurely. And so that's why during the, the the main mission and the extended mission and the extended extended missions, close-up ring science was limited. It also, I guess, isn't the best way to destroy a spacecraft, though, because there's space between the objects and the rings. And so, yeah, you might get some punctures and hits from, you know, bits of space rock, but you don't actually know if you're destroying the spacecraft. And so maybe now you just have an inoperable spacecraft that's going to be orbiting Saturn and end up in some chaotic orbit and end up striking, you know, Enceladus or Titan, which is no good. Yeah. And that seems, that seems like the most likely thing that would happen to me, because like you said, they're not, I mean, these rings are, I I actually don't know how well spaced apart the individual particles of rock and ice or whatever are, but you know, I don't think it would completely annihilate a spacecraft and it's still in space, you know, yeah. I mean, it it just seems like that wouldn't be a good a, a good way of getting rid of it for the sake of planetary protection. It, it yeah, that didn't make sense to me. Yeah, and I'm, I'm with you on that. And so then uh, another option too, and we had talked about uh, how I guess like the best graveyard orbit is a heliocentric orbit, right? Because space is just so mm-hmm. mind-bogglingly big, <laughs> is to go and just uh, yeet out. Uh, there's a word I haven't heard in a few years. Uh, 
uh, Cassini <laughs> and uh, just put it into a, you know, have it escape Saturn orbit and go into a heliocentric one. It would uh, take a bit longer to have the maneuvers do this, but you would actually eat up less fuel uh, than you might think. Uh, you might think that, you know, getting out of, you know, Saturnian, out of the Saturnian gravitational well would cost a lot more fuel than just kind of redirecting where you are within the well. But um, at this point, uh, Cassini had been ping-ponging off moons for over a decade at this point, right? Because it's been changing its trajectory by doing flybys mm -hmm. of different moons and ping-ponging. That's Ben's words, which is a great way to describe it. And so this is wild. Over Cassini's, uh, the mission's lifetime, they'd gotten the equivalent of 90 kilometers per second worth of delta V out of gravity yeah. assists from Titan. And that so, is a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, that wasn't all in the same, you know, direction, quote unquote direction, you know, because that would put it uh, on a heliocentric, if not a, uh, you know, escaping Earth's, <laughs> if you could just suddenly pump it with 90 kilometers per second or escaping Earth's, uh, escaping the solar system. Um, but yeah. But then, uh, but again, uh, just by doing that, yeah, you just, you, in a sense, dispose of the spacecraft uh, in terms of uh, planetary protection. Uh, but you didn't really gain any science from doing that. Yeah. So there were also even uh, there were even more options than this um, uh, that were uh, less ideal, but considered because that's kind of you know the way you want to do these things. Uh, you could do transfers, uh, maybe do a transfer to Jupiter and have I guess the extended 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 mission <laughs> at Jupiter. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I feel like that's kind of kicking the can down the road because then you got to dispose of the spacecraft safely at Jupiter. Uh, eventually. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this is this would have been a good competitor for what was the mission to uh, Ceres and oh Dawn. Uh, Dawn, yeah, the Dawn mission, like just ah. really moving around the solar system in some very impressive ways. You know, going from mm -hmm. one system to another, like you know the Jovian to the Saturn one, like that's impressive. No, that that, um, that would be would something been, else. Which, yeah, I, I mean, it's still impressive considering you get ninety kilometers per second of you know delta V just from gravity assist. Which I almost wonder if that's a typo, but I guess not. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> that's that's. I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah, and 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 I'm assuming the trans, the you know, this isn't going and entering. Uh, Jupiter orbit. So I guess yeah, so I guess maybe that doesn't kick the can so much down the road because if it was just doing a flyby of Jupiter, then you know Oh yeah. Good you could point. you could just you know. But yeah, so so you could do that and then you could get some new science at Jupiter. But like, you know, a flyby mission to Jupiter with Cassini, I don't know. Is is it really gonna get you that much new science? Uh, probably not. Uh similarly, uh, you could try to transfer to a, a centaur, right? Um, an asteroid that's, you know, out at these uh, distances. But again, you're just kind of doing a flyby of it, which is cool. You'd get some new pictures of one of these, but maybe you could do uh, better than that. And we can see what they ended up choosing was uh, was trying to get more science than just a flyby of Jupiter or Centaur. There uh, was the, uh, the option of actually staying in a stable orbit just outside of Titan. So I guess the idea is to go in a... I mean, I guess it's the equivalent of a graveyard orbit around the Earth, where in that case, you've got a lot of artificial satellites. But if you know where they are, you know, you put yourself, you know, 100 kilometers above uh, Geo and you're all set. You know, you're not going to impact anything. And so I guess they uh, had discovered enough moons around Saturn to think that, all right, well, if there's, you know, there's stable orbits just outside the orbit of Titan and you can go there and you can be sure that you aren't going to end up having chaos throw you into uh, one of these uh, astrobiologically interesting places. Um, but that was time expensive. 
it would take all the fuel that you had. So there's not really a margin, much margin for error and you wouldn't really get any science out of it. You would just be parking it in this orbit. And similarly, they, they also considered uh, an, a similar one, another stable orbit just outside of Phoebe, uh, but that would have been even more challenging to be able to do. Ultimately, the ideal solution and the one that was ultimately chosen was to impact into Saturn itself. Good old, what a, what a, what a grand finale. And also, you know, Saturn devouring his son, um, in this case, devouring Cassini. Yeah. And so, and so the way that they do this is even that requires much consideration, it seems. Uh, yeah, apparently one option was to move into a higher orbit before crashing back down. And uh, apparently that wouldn't add much delta V, but it would require a specific inclination and a lot of time waiting for gravity to pull the vehicle back down. Yeah, you if you wanted to dive into the sun, it's, mm -hmm. it's much more from like a orbital mechanics perspective, it's much easier to kind of boost your aphelion first and then decrease your perihelion. Right. Uh, Basically, you would move into the higher orbit, I guess, by doing a perigee burn and maybe making use of the Oberth effect, getting to getting to the apogee or apo, whatever it's called. I was going to um, say apo, for Saturn. apo Saturn, oh, apo, apocron. Apo Saturn. I bet it's Cronus. I bet they uh... probably or getting to your apoapsis, right? Yeah, apoapsis. You can always go apoapsis and periapsis if you're not sure. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and then you do a retrograde burn, right? And then that would put the perigee inside uh, the planet's atmosphere, right? at that point and uh so anyway yeah so that was one option um but uh instead they designed a short period orbit where they could squeeze between the inner edge of the d-ring and the upper extent of the atmosphere that's just a gap of uh, 3,200 kilometers very surprising i didn't know that i didn't know that the d-ring or you know I, i'm not too familiar with all the various rings and their distances but that's a lot closer than i thought so that's the one apparently that uh, they opted for and uh this short period orbit was totally valid while the team got ready for the final plunge uh, and the spacecraft was not in danger of any kind of an early or unplanned destruction. And it was similar to the rest of Cassini's science orbits. So I guess they understood the dynamics of this very well. So they ah. just put it in that orbit. Um, and then from there, only two to 10 months would be needed for the whole of the grand finale. Uh, and again, I'm just reading Ben's notes here, but uh, that's an interesting way of wording it for the whole of the grand finale. So once that was uh, set up and it was in that orbit, it just needed a nudge. And that was all that was required to bring the flight path down into the atmosphere. So yeah, if you're orbiting, you know, with around just, you know, 3,200 kilometers distance, I guess it wouldn't take too much. Mm -hmm. What's a good way of describing this? Yeah, so this particular orbit, if you consider the orbit to be a ring, and then you think of Saturn's rings, and then you have Saturn right there in the middle, this is like a ring that slides in between Saturn and its rings, and that's at the perigee, and then the apogee extends you know, much further beyond the planet itself. Like just looking at the visual, you can really see how making a slight adjustment at the apoapsis, it's definitely going to bring it into Saturn. And it will also get you a very good look at the D-ring as you re-enter for that final orbit. So that particular orbit actually lasted about 20 orbits, just threading that needle between the D-ring and the planet itself before it finally re-entered so yeah you get some good science from doing that you can actually take some uh, you know close-up observations ultimately that proved to be the best option certainly better than trying to crash it into the rings which i isn't even really crashing just more like I, plowing I think, through yeah <laughs> plowing through worst case scenario you like 
ding up your spacecraft and create more debris or something mm. <laughs> like if it actually hits anything it doesn't see, yeah so yeah, yeah i'm with you that it doesn't seem like the best way to destroy your spacecraft which is kind of the goal to to passivate it <laughs> by destruction um as opposed to passivating it by tossing it out onto a heliocentric orbit but yeah um i'm, I'm guessing like you know i mean it's, it was you know it was considered and dismissed but you know i guess you know the case would be that you could get some ring science out of it but this was a good compromise, which is to dive in to like, I mean, again, this, the, these, these grand finale orbits are so eccentric that you're coming in to within the space between Saturn and its innermost ring. And so that gets you, like you said, a nice good view of the, uh, the D ring. Um, and then also when you're at your apocron, apocron, you're beyond or at least comparable to like Titan's orbit. So you're going really, really far out there. So, yeah. Yep. But uh, I guess that's it. Yeah. So that's Ben's This Week in Space Life History. <laughs> yeah. So the date range for next week's event is going to be the 19th through the 25th of September. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1981, big f***ing red spill. <laughs> we'll have to bleep that. Yeah. You've been red spilled. <laughs> so if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, uh, just give us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf. And you can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash discord for an invite to our discord server and type slash TWSF uh, to hand your guest directly to our Tombot. So let's uh, let's move on then to upcoming spaceflight events. And thank you to Launch Library 2, which is where we start our research each week. So we just have three launches. So yeah, pretty slow launch week again. Uh, what's the first launch? Uh, first up, we've got a Falcon 9 Block 5 that'll be taking Starlink Group 616 to LEO. And so you can look for that flying out of the Cape at Slick 40 uh, sometime between September 15th uh, at 0130 UTC to 0502 UTC. And then after that, on the 15th, we have the launch of a Soyuz 2.1A flying Soyuz mission MS-24. This one is carrying two cosmonauts and one astronaut to the International Space Station. And the launch time for that, as I said, on the 15th is at 1544 and 36 seconds, just to be precise. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome from 31 slash 6, which, yeah, is a pad somewhere. So check that out if you can. Uh, go into the ISS. And also just uh, maybe it's worth mentioning. So the, the cosmonauts and astronaut that are being launched, uh, uh, Oleg Kononenko, Kononenko is going to be the commander uh, with Nikolai Chubb going on their first uh, space flight. And then Laurel O'Hara, uh, who's part of the latest class uh, for NASA. Uh, this will be uh, her first flight. And I I almost want to say, and I should confirm this, but Oleg Konyanko, I think he was part of the Stabby Stab EVA. Which one's that again? You have to remind me of what that That was when they busted out a knife and just straight up started slicing into the outer part of the Soyuz, the cutting through the multi-layer insulation because they had that, uh, that little hole. The, oh, that leak. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and so after they patched <laughs> it from the inside, they did the spacewalk and wanted to see it from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. It was him. Yeah. Him and uh, Sergei Prokopiev. So yeah, so Konyanko might have been the person who was actually doing the stabbing. Okay, I've never heard it referred to as a stabby stab mission. Oh yeah, the stabby stabby. Oh yeah. Was there a knife fight in orbit? Okay. <laughs> and uh, and then finally, uh, we have uh, a possible launch, or at least I mean, it's going to be coming up at some point. But based on a Rocket Lab tweet, we have an NET for September nineteenth. Uh, Electron uh, doing another Capella space mission, and so this would be. Uh, 
this is the We Will Never Desert You, uh, a pun on <laughs> desert you. <laughs> it's tough to say, but yeah, um, it's it's uh, Capella's uh, SAR uh, Earth Imaging uh, satellites, in particular these Acadia ones. And so uh, it's just taken a single one up to LEO. And it will be launching out of the uh, Mahaya Peninsula in New Zealand. And again, the NET is uh, Tuesday, September 19th. So I guess just keep an eye out for that. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific and 12 p.m. Eastern. And thank you so much to Citronaut, Mike Astrocon, Stan Gopal, and Chubby for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. And get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com about, or you can skip all that by emailing us at info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. See ya.